And we continue with Our American Stories, and this one is from a listener, Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. And Tom grew up at a funeral parlor run by his family in Long Island, moved to L.A., but there was this one couple he always thought about and admired, and that's Joe and Clara. He was having a conversation with his mom when we last left off, and let's pick it up right here. People had standards in those days, not like today. All those years, unbelievable, I muttered. They always thought they would marry, but the diocese was so strict, so strict. She shook her head. How's she taking it? I asked. Tears started to flow again as she said with a sob, that's the other sad news. Clara passed away just last week. Remember I told you last year that she was fighting cancer. Dr. Joe was doing all he could for her, but then he went. I stared at the bottom of my teacup. That's so sad, both of them. So you had them waked out in front within a few months of each other? She nodded. A voice dropped off as she said, that's what I have to tell you. I broke the law. I did something I shouldn't have. But I feel so glad I did. Seeing the confused look on my face, she continued, Dr. Joe donated his vital organs to science. His two children finally turned up and requested that his remains be cremated. Their mother had recently died, they said. As usual, the crematorium returned Dr. Joe's ashes to us, and I stored them out in the hall closet. I nodded as I recalled the hall closet from childhood. Stacks of canister of ashes had lined the shelves of the closet for years. Many were never claimed by the families who either moved away or didn't want to come in and pay the funeral bill. Many of the paper name tags had fallen off. Sometimes before air conditioning, those with no name tags were used to prop open the front doors on hot summer nights at crowded wakes. I always smiled when I realized that unbeknownst to anyone else, the unclaimed ashes of a big muck-a-duck politician, as my mom called him, were used on many a hot night to humbly hold the door open for the constituents he had fleeced for so many years. Do Dr. Joe's kids want the ashes, I asked. Yes, Mom replied, they are fighting over the estate. It's sizable. Both children have lawyers. The daughter was adopted, and the son is claiming that she isn't entitled to anything. It's gotten pretty petty. Now both lawyers are claiming the ashes right away. So that's what Judge O'Sullivan was talking to you about? Yes, he sent me a copy of a court order. She pulled a blue-backed legal document from her nearby knitting basket and handed it to me. I guess it says I'm to give the ashes over to the court. 
As I read the order, I nodded in agreement. Yep, that's it. So what's so hot about that? She didn't answer directly. Instead, she put down her teacup, looked out the kitchen bay window dreamily, and said, Clara looked so beautiful in the casket in her peach dress, her hair done the way she liked it, her good pearls. She started to sniffle while speaking. Well, they waited for each other a very long time in full grace, so I'm sure they're together in heaven, I volunteered. She blushed and with a tight smile played around the corners of her mouth. I helped things a little, she murmured. Help things, I asked. An unsettling chill slid down my spine. She looked straight at me and said, when all the mourners had gone, the men were loading them into the limits to go to church. I went back to say a last goodbye to Clara before they came back to close the casket. I was all alone with her having a good cry when suddenly I remembered Dr. Joe's ashes in the closet. So, so, so she spoke rapidly. I pried off the top of the canister with those pliers we keep in that closet and poured all of Dr. Joe's ashes onto Clara's lap and into the satin lining of the casket. A voice rose with pride as she finished. A warm glow surged through me. You mean, a smile cut me off, Mike, Clara, and Dr. Joe are finally joined together in eternity, and I'm so happy for them that I just want to burst with joy when I think of it. I know that legally I had no right to disturb those ashes. Tears of happiness rolled down her freckled face. And now I'm in trouble. The court wants the ashes. What should I do? I kneeled next to her chair and hugged her and comforted her. She didn't see the tears of pride in the corners of my eyes. My mind raced as I searched for an answer. Mom, I talked quietly over her shoulder while still holding her. The law is very hard in ways, but it tries to be responsive to our human needs and desires. We know, and I'm sure Judge O'Sullivan would agree, if he knew that you were right, that Dr. Joe would have wanted to be with Clara. You did something beautiful. She broke away for a moment to dab her nose and eyes with the tissue. I stayed close to her and started to speak, but she blurted, He knows, and started to cry again. What? He knows, she repeated. Judge O'Sullivan knows what you did? She nodded. He's an old friend. We buried his mother and father. He knew Dr. Joe and Clara. They were close. I couldn't lie to him. I plopped down in the kitchen chair. Wow, was all I could manage. He said to talk to you, she continued. He knows you're a lawyer. What else did he say? Not much. He was silent when I told him. I think he almost cried. His voice broke, sort of. He said to talk to you, and oh yes, to tell you to get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it to his court clerk. 
That's exactly what he said. Get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it? Yes. She just nodded and sniffled. I sipped my tea and smiled. The kitchen was quiet except for the ticking of the grandfather clock in the hallway. I headed for the hall closet. And what a story, and thanks to Tom Ryan. And again, he's a 95-year-old listener on KABC in Los Angeles. And thank you, Tom. And there are more to come from him, actually, because, well, that's not an accident what you just heard, folks. What a voice. What a story. And my goodness, there was a time. I mean, imagine that. The Catholic Church wouldn't annul that wedding. And so these two just could never live together. They just couldn't live together. They always thought they'd marry, but things were so strict. So, so strict. The mom said that. Clara passed away, and soon thereafter, Joe did. And that happened so often, folks, in life. We've seen it happen time and again in stories we tell. June Cash died, and Johnny Cash died not soon thereafter. And George Bush and Barbara Bush, look at how quickly that happened. And so it is when you lose that loved one for all those years. Well, a party just wants to join him. And my goodness, the way Tom's mom handled things, I broke the law. And I'm so glad I did. And sometimes, you know, folks, the rules don't make any sense. And that's a hard thing to teach your kids because you got to teach them to follow the rules, except when they shouldn't, right? Except when they shouldn't. And we want to hear your stories, any kind, love stories, inspirational stories, any kind at all, courage, faith, Hope, love, these are the things we write about a lot and talk about here on this show. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Tom Ryan's story and his mom's story about Joe and Clara. All of their stories together here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this is National Police Week. Back in 1962, President John F. Kennedy declared May 15th as Peace Officers Memorial Day, and ever since, we have honored fallen police officers during the week that day falls in. Today, we take you back to 2016 in two unrelated incidents on July 5th and 6th. Two black men were shot by police in Louisiana and Minnesota. The following night on July 7th, Protesters gathered in cities across the United States. In Dallas, about 800 marched, and they did so in an area protected by around 100 cops. As you might imagine, this was an emotional but peaceful event until one evildoer set his plan into motion. 
described by his friends and co-workers as someone with anger management problems who was distrustful of police. This deranged man said he wanted to kill white people, especially white officers. Two minutes before 9 p.m. that night in Dallas, this toxic brew turned into action as he began shooting at police and civilian protesters. Since the cops were unsure where the gunfire came from or even how many attackers there were, they did what they knew they had to do. They moved into the open to secure streets and intersections and protect vulnerable protesters as other cops zeroed in on the gunfire. This eventually led to a standoff with the attacker holed up in a college building. He told police that he would only speak to black police officers. According to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, quote, We had negotiated with him for about two hours, and he just basically lied to us, playing games, laughing at us, singing, asking how many did he get and that he wanted to kill some more. Faced with a fortified, heavily armed opponent and seeing no possibility of a negotiated end, Chief Brown ordered a bomb disposal robot to deliver a pound of explosives to the attacker. That did the job, but the job wasn't over. The attacker had said he placed bombs all over Dallas, putting more citizens at risk. As it turns out, he was lying, but he had done enough damage. Eleven were injured and five dead. In the following days, police and well-wishers from all over the world converged to honor the five Dallas cops who were killed that night. Among the folks in attendance at the memorial service were President and Mrs. Obama and former President and Mrs. Bush. Here's how former President George W. Bush began his remarks. Today the nation grieves, but those of us who love Dallas and call it home have had five deaths in the family. Laura and I see members of law enforcement every day. We count, we count them as our friends. And we know, like for every other American, that their courage is our protection and shield. We're proud of the men we mourn and the community that has rallied to honor them and support the wounded. Our mayor and police chief and our police department have been mighty inspirations for the rest of the nation. These slain officers were the best among us. Lauren Ahrens, beloved husband to Detective Katrina Ahrens and father of two. Michael Kroll, caring son, brother, uncle, nephew, and friend. Michael Smith, U.S. Army veteran, devoted husband and father of two. Brent Thompson, Marine Corps vet, recently married. Patrick Zamaripa. U.S. Navy Reserve Combat Veteran, proud father, and loyal Texas Rangers fan. <laughs> With their deaths, we have lost so much. We are grief-stricken, heartbroken, and forever grateful. President Bush then got to the heart of the matter. Why had so many gathered in Dallas for this memorial? Every officer has accepted a calling that sets them apart. Most of us imagine if the moment called for that we would risk our lives to protect a spouse or a child. 
those wearing the uniform assume that risk for the safety of strangers. They and their families share the unspoken knowledge that each new day can bring new dangers. But none of us were prepared or could be prepared for an ambush by hatred and malice. The shock of this evil still has not faded. At times, it seems like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates too quickly into dehumanization. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples, while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And this is... And this has strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose. But Americans, I think, have a great advantage. To renew our unity, we only need to remember our values. We have never been held together by blood or background. We are bound by things of the spirit, by shared commitments to common ideals. And President Bush then elaborated on those ideals. At our best, we practice empathy, imagining ourselves in the lives and circumstances of others. This is the bridge across our nation's deepest divisions. And it's not merely a matter of tolerance, but of learning from the struggles and stories of our fellow citizens and finding our better selves in the process. At our best, we honor the image of God we see in one another. We recognize that we are brothers and sisters sharing the same brief moment on earth and owing each other the loyalty of our shared humanity. At our best, we know we have one country, one future, one destiny. We do not want the unity of grief, nor we want the unity of fear. We want the unity of hope, affection, and high purpose. We know that the kind of just, humane country we want to build, that we have seen in our best dreams, is made possible when men and women in uniform stand guard. At their best, when they're trained and trusted and accountable, they free us from fear. The Apostle Paul said, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of strength and love and self-control. Those are the best responses to fear in the life of our country. And they're the code of the peace officer. Finally, President Bush turned his attention to the families of the police officers killed in the line of duty. Today, all of us feel a sense of loss, but not equally. I'd like to conclude with the word of the families, the spouses, and especially the children of the fallen. Your loved one time with you was too short. They did not get a chance to properly say goodbye. But they went where duty called. They defended us, even to the end. They finished well. We will not forget what they did for us. Your loss is unfair. We cannot explain it. We can stand beside you and share your grief. And we can pray that God will comfort you with a hope deeper than sorrow, 
and stronger than death. May God bless you. And after these short messages, we'll bring you more from vigils and memorials for the five Dallas police officers killed by a deranged attacker in July of 2016. Cops killed while watching over American citizens exercising their right to protest. Celebrating National Police Week here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Police Week, and we love to honor the cops, and the fallen cops particularly. We honor soldiers on Memorial Day. We always do a special two-hour version. We honor our soldiers on Veterans Day and all through the year, and we do the same for cops, particularly our random acts of kindness, where we regularly tell stories of cops who just do extraordinary things in their neighborhood. And yes, there are some bad cops. Take a listen to our hour with the head of... Uh, internal affairs at New York City Police Department. He was head of he was head of internal affairs for 15 years or so, and wrote a terrific book called Blue on Blue. And there are bad cops, but good cops hate them, and know that good cops hate bad cops, and most of them want to see them gone. And so we're going to take you right now to a memorial service for one of the five Dallas police officers killed in July of 2016. Dallas area rapid transit officer. Brent Thompson is first. Here are two of his daughters standing with their four other siblings telling the audience about their dad. Please bear with us. Um, This is really hard for all of us, but luckily our dad taught us how to fight under pressure, and that's what we're doing today. (laughs) And we wanted to say thank you to everyone here supporting him and everyone who's been supporting him and our family and all the other heroes that lost their lives. Um, We all need that support, and we really appreciate it. It's been so overwhelming seeing all of y'all here today for our dad and honoring him and just giving us respect for what he's done for us because that's something he would have loved to have seen. Y'all knew our dad as a police officer, but we knew him as our dad. His only goal in life was to provide a better life for his children and us, whether it was going, becoming, an over, um, becoming a Marine or going overseas. He worked so, so hard to provide for us his entire life, working two jobs, sometimes countless, countless numbers of overtime just so we didn't have to struggle and work hard because that's what he wanted for us. And luckily he's left this legacy that's something no one can take away. <laughs> And this is something we'll never be able to forget. And I know he's looking so happy that he's done what he's been trying to accomplish his entire life, providing all the support from all of the different officers, organizations, everyone. And I know it's just, we're so proud of him and we just want him to know that we love him and that he's done it. He succeeded. (laughs) 
Every child thinks that their dad is a hero, but the six of us up here can hold our heads up high knowing that our dad is a hero. I think it's really important to remember he was just not a hero to Dallas, but to the world. He fought overseas for many, many years, not fighting just for us, but for everyone as well. He was gone on special mission trips countless, countless times. He missed birthdays, dance competitions, tennis games, football games, but he never missed a Christmas. And I remember one year we all thought he wasn't going to be able to make it home. And they told us, like, we'll just celebrate later, you know, Christmas in July. But he surprised us all, and he made it home. And now he's home for good. One thing I would always say to my dad when he walked out the door was, Goodbye, Daddy. Be safe. And tonight we say our final, Goodbye, Daddy. We love you. Be safe. And listen to this stirring ceremonial final radio call for Officer Michael Kroll at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas. Now let's give the last word to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, a man who had worked for decades to reform Dallas Police to increase transparency and accountability, the man who ended the standoff with a lunatic who attacked a peaceful protest and killed five cops, and the man who in many ways became a symbol for the best that his department and profession had to offer. No white, no black, no artificial division. Faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train, it's a plane. No, it's Superman. As a young child, I ran home from school to hear that so that I could see the reruns of the television series, Superman. I love superheroes. 
Because they're now like what I aspired to be when I grew up. They're like cops. They're like police officers. Superheroes. And, and cops are mission focused. Give us a job to do, we'll focus on accomplishing the mission. So what's our mission today? It's helping these families understand how to conquer this tragedy. What do we tell you all? Well, being a person of faith, I always refer back to the good book, the Bible. And we have an example of how to conquer this tragedy. When the good Lord was crucified and rose on the third day, alive, he said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Families, we love you. We love you with everything we have. We are now your surrogate family members. We're your brothers and your sisters. When you need us, you call. Because we'll not only be loving you today, we'll be loving you always. Always. Till the end of time. We'll be loving you until you are me and I am you. Always. Always. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train. It's a plane. No, it's Patricio Zamarepa. Look, it's Brent Thompson. Look, it's Michael Crow. Look, it's Lauren Aarons. Look, it's Michael Smith. Godspeed. God bless you. God bless the Dallas Police Department. And there you have it, Police Chief David Brown, who, by the way, had urged anyone in Black Lives Matter that if they wanted to make a difference, they really wanted to make a difference, there were openings at the Dallas Police Department. And to many people's credit, well, applications rose. And that's a good thing. And a great unifier for his city, for the country, and African-American himself, Police Chief David Brown's Final words. And again, this is National Police Week, and we're celebrating the week. The five fallen heroes in Dallas, celebrated and honored here on Our American Stories, their stories. Beautiful stories.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man, a tribute to those who serve because it's National Police Week. A week to honor the fallen, a week to honor those who gave their last full measure of devotion to their communities, to their country. National Police Week centers around a memorial service that began in 1982 as a gathering in Washington, D.C.'s Senate Park with approximately 120 survivors and supporters of law enforcement. Decades later, tens of thousands attended annually. For the hour, we'll celebrate the fallen's lives with their stories and tributes to them. The first story is of Ashley Gwinden, a 28-year-old police officer who lost her life on her very first shift on February 27, 2016, in Prince William County, Virginia. Earlier this morning, we interviewed her mentor and counselor, Chris Bonner, professor at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, about Ashley. Chris is a veteran of law enforcement himself, spending 28 years as a special agent with the FBI and is now a reserve deputy sheriff in his community. He first told us how he met Ashley. I teach courses in Homeland Security and Security Studies to include uh, uh, terrorism, intelligence, and uh, criminal justice. Ashley was one of my first students uh, that I taught at Embry-Riddle, and uh, she was also a, I learned she was a reservist in the United States Marine Corps, so uh, she, she attracted a lot of attention, uh, my attention, you know, because of her background and the, the career field she chose. Uh, after class, uh, a lot of my students will come to my office and um, we'll talk about my prior law enforcement career. And, and sometimes I uh, suggest to them that it's it, perhaps a career path that they should entertain. Ashley was one of them. She identified early on that she wanted to go into law enforcement. Ashley wanted to go into forensics and crime scene investigations. She entered the graduate program in forensic science at George Washington University and subsequently took an internship and then a job at Prince William County Crime Scene Unit, and later found her calling as a police officer, and then came her first day. And then came the news that nobody wants to hear, no family member, no friend, no nobody. And we hear again here from Chris, her mentor, and how he learned of what happened, sadly and tragically, to his mentee. Then one sad day, I, I, uh, a couple months ago, I, I, I go online and I see a police officer was killed in the line of duty. And, uh, you know, it, and as I said before, it, it, I, I take these things personally. It really hits home. I've lost friends that were killed in the line of duty who are who law enforcement officers. And then I was horrified to see that it was Ashley Blinden. And it was even more horrified and saddened to see that it was her first day on the job. She did not even complete her first shift. When she responded to a domestic violence call, and from talking to my colleagues and, and, and law enforcement partners, is sometimes one of the worst calls you can get uh, involved in because they're highly emotionally charged. Usually um, physical abuse occurs, and somebody's going to jail that night. So Ashley and her training officer and another officer appear at this um, uh, house, uh, and uh, upon approaching the house, uh, the subject uh, opened the door, uh, met them with a rifle, and started shooting. Ashley and the two other officers went down, uh, and I learned that Ashley 
refused her delayed medical attention, saying that her partners needed it more than she did. I, I think back on these things and, and the sorrow and the tragedy that unfolded that day, both the victim of the domestic violence and the police officers, and it, 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 uh, it's just tragic. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I, was, I was just uh, crestfallen when, when, I, when I heard that. Uh, she'll ever be forever remembered as a hero and, and, and a role model, uh, especially the females. Uh, females are underrepresented in law enforcement, and, and I think Ashley Gwinden should be considered uh, a, a, a beacon, a bright light as an example to everyone uh, of, of the best of young people and what they could become. Well, indeed, only 11% of law enforcement is female. Ashley, again, was one of them. We asked Chris, was she one of the few folks he mentored, or was she one of a kind? She was one of a few that became one of a kind. She was one of a few because of, of her, um, her background uh, being uh, a Marine Corps reservist. Um, and, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, she was a female, usually the, the students of mine, the one of one law enforcement are generally, you know, the male students, uh, and that set her aside and apart. And, uh, you know, because of her background, um, she lost her father. Uh, she was raised by her mother. Um, I, uh, I, I kind of took special interest, uh, in her, um, in, in, in wanting her to realize her career. So mentorship is a very, very important part of my job as a university professor uh, to help these students uh, identify a career path and then help them realize that dream. I was, I'm, I'm only too happy to help. I, I think it's part of, it is part of my job. And uh, Ashley was an individual that uh, uh, I, I wanted to make sure that she attained the goal that she set uh, and I feel like I helped her do that, but then tragically, um, you know, uh, she's not with us anymore. However, she still continues to be a mentor. And she can forever be a mentor in the hearts of law enforcement officers uh, as an example of the best. And indeed, that domestic dispute case, there was a telephone voice and a call from a wife, a woman afraid of her husband. And she said, he's going to kill me. And when Ashley and her crew got there, that woman was dead. And then that guy wanted to kill cops, and he did. So always remember these cops, when they respond to these calls, they never know what's going to happen. Ashley Gwinden, just one of others, we'll, co- we'll cover here on our tribute in National Police Week to Fallen Heroes. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, National Police Week. A week to honor the fallen. A week to honor those who gave their last full measure of devotion to their communities and their country. 
And we're talking about Ashley Gwinden, who was tragically killed on her first shift on February 27, 2016, in Prince William County, Virginia, answering the domestic dispute call, something you'd think would just be quite ordinary, only it didn't end well. And we were talking to her mentor this morning, and Chris Bonner, a former FBI agent, and again, her mentor and her teacher, we spoke with. And for almost any of us, anytime we do something brand new for the first time, it's nerve-wracking. And that's especially got to be the case for police officers on their first call, answering that first call. We asked Chris Bonner how Ashley must have felt going into this, her first and her final shift. Of, of course, you're a bundle of nerves. Uh, you're hoping that you're going to do the right thing. Uh, you, you, you have a field training officer with you, and, and especially women. Because women in law enforcement, there's, there's still that male dominance that, 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 that kind of says, oh, well, you know, she needs help. She's a woman. She's, um, uh, she's, she's, she's not going to execute to, to the standards of training. Uh, and, and I'm sure all that's going through her mind, especially her first call, that she, she wanted to do well. She, she was going to do well. She was going to apply her training, her, her, her intelligence on that. Uh, and I'm sure that was going through her mind, going up to that that door the first time you make an arrest, not knowing what's on the other side of the door. It, it's quite intimidating, uh, and it's an adrenaline rush, an adrenaline flow. Uh, and I'm sure all these emotions were going on in her head. But then again, when 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 a, a, a police officer approaches that front door, you get that tunnel vision, um, uh, and and you become so focused. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's just a um, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of things going on uh, where where the general public sees or reads about police encounters and shootings and such, uh, and then they analyze it like the talking heads on TV do. Well, they have the vision of hindsight. They have the time to assess and analyze what's going on. Not a police officer. A police officer has to react in a split second in life-and-death situations, uh, hoping that uh, the, the training will kick in and the right thing will be done. Um, it, it's a lot to process, especially in the mind of somebody in the first day of the job. We asked Chris what it was like going to Ashley's funeral and the all-too-many-law-enforcement funerals he's been to. Uh, when you go to, uh, we call them cop funerals or police funerals, uh, you see the long lines of, of police officers standing at attention, stone-faced and stoic. Um, uh, but inside, uh, a full range of emotions are, are, are taking place uh, to include uh, um, angst, anxiety, sorrow, grief. And every time a uh, police officer is killed in the line of duty, a law enforcement officer pays the ultimate sacrifice, uh, a little bit of us uh, dies uh, with that officer uh, inside of us. MB Riddle Aeronautical University, where Chris is a professor, has permanently placed a plaque on the campus in honor of Ashley, a plaque that contains one of her favorite sayings. Live for something rather than die for nothing. Chris once told a reporter, quote, Sometimes I feel like I kind of talked her into this career. Do I feel a sense of responsibility? I don't know. If Chris does have any responsibility for talking her into this career, he should be proud of it.
proud of who she was and his role in it. And this next gentleman we're about to hear from said it was right. It was meant to be. He said it was time to go home. God called them home. Let's take a listen to the then Memphis police director, Tony Armstrong, eulogizing police officer and Marine veteran of the Iraq war, Sean Bolton, who was shot and killed during a traffic stop that many of us civilians see as routine and a nuisance. But for cops, well, that's not quite how they see it. Let's take a listen. The citizens in this great city slept very well knowing that Sean was on patrol. On August the 1st, God arranged for Sean to patrol the neighborhood. God arranged that meeting. People were asleep in their beds. Sean was doing what I would love in you, the man that we do. Patrol your neighborhood. You demand that when we see something that just does not feel right to us, that our training, our experience tells us is not right, you demand that we investigate. And that's exactly what Sean did. Sean encountered an individual and it's basically said that that individual took his life, but that's not totally true. It was time for Sean to go home. God called Sean home. At the conclusion of our shifts, after we've done our time, our officers get on the radio. Tell the dispatcher it's time for me to signal C. And basically what that is is just telling the dispatcher, I've completed my shift. I've answered every call. I've done my absolute best on this day. My time is up. I've done my job. Take me out of service. I'm no longer available for calls. It's time for me to go home. And Sean made it home. God embrace Sean. And I want to say to Sean now what we should have said to him a long time ago. Thank you. Thank you for your service to this country. And thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice to this city. When Sean made it home, God embraced him. God looked at him and said, Sean, all lives matter. All lives matter. And some time ago I wrote a column called Cops' Lives Matter. And some of the things I pointed out in that column were the remarkable number of lives cops save and have saved. And in New York City, for instance, in the 1990s, 2,200 people a year were getting killed, murdered. And it was 290 the year before last. That's amazing. I wrote, the majority of lives saved were actually black because the overwhelming majority of murder victims in the city are black. Do the math. Tens of thousands of black lives saved in the past two decades by cops, black and white, in New York. By the way, the mayor couldn't manage to bring that up when there had been a terrible and tragic and fatal shooting and a couple of things that cops had done in New York that weren't particularly good. 
And by the way, there are bad cops. But he didn't give credit to all the good cops and never bothered. Why are you killing us? A protester recently asked Sergeant Harry Dilworth, a black cop from Ferguson. Dilworth told a New York Times reporter that he responded by naming three names and asked the protester if he had heard of any of them. The protester hadn't. Dilworth told him they were black men recently killed in St. Louis by other black men. We're not killing you. You're killing yourselves, the African-American man told the other African-American man. And that's why so many cops are upset. Yeah, there are bad cops. We know that. And we've got to out them. And cops know this. And there's got to be more transparency. But they're being blamed, I wrote, for problems they didn't cause. And because not one of those leaders tried to exhibit any sympathy for cops at that time, then the world and the media was coming down on law enforcement in general. And by the way, the media could have asked us to imagine what it would like to be the spouse of a cop working in New York City or Detroit or Los Angeles or some of the tough crime areas in white or rural America. Most Americans, I wrote, have no idea what it's like to be a cop, what cops worry about, what their families worry about, how easily a simple disturbance can get out of hand, how dangerous a domestic violence case can turn, how tragically even a routine traffic stop can end. What every cop I know tells me is this. What they worry about most is doing no harm to innocent people and getting home safe each night and getting their partners home safe too. And what they tell me over and over is this. What throws everything upside down is when a person being questioned or stopped doesn't comply with the instructions of police. Or worse, when he or she resists, that's when bad things happen. It doesn't matter what the infraction is. When a citizen resists arrests, it's a dangerous signal. And that's when everything heads south. Black lives matter, we close the column out with. But cops' lives matter, too. And the two both need to be understood. This is Lee Habib. More in this celebration and honoring of fallen cops, National Police Week. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and it's National Police Week, a week to honor the fallen, and again, to honor those who gave their last measure of devotion to their communities and paid the ultimate price with their lives. Our next story is that of Kentucky State Trooper Cameron Ponder. On September, on September 13th, 2015, he was conducting a routine traffic stop. It was 10 p.m., And after about 10 minutes, the vehicle sped off, leading Trooper Ponder on a high-speed chase. Let's listen to the harrowing audio of the police radio communications on what happened next. His car is smoking. He's slowing down. We're down to 76 right now. 10-4. I think he's stopping here at the 49. 10-4, 35, you copy? He's off again. He's got a blown front left tire. I tried to him in, and he's uh, trying to go still. Hey, Permission to uh, pit. Yeah. 
And by the way, that's not a CSI series, folks. That's what it sounds like. Trooper Ponder died as a result of his wounds, including a gunshot wound to the face. One man who knew Trooper Cameron Ponder was Agent Garrick Zink Kazinkowitz, himself with the United States Border Patrol. He wanted Cam, his best friend of 20 years, to be the best man at his wedding. Here's what Zink later wrote in remembrance of his friend. And I'm going to read. Cam, words can't explain what you meant to me. It seems like just yesterday we were dominating the playing fields together. Buddy, what I do to get back to those days. There are so many good times we shared together when we were growing up. Great stories. Memories I'll carry with me forever, my friend. It's been a little more than a year since you've left San Diego now. I remember helping you get all your stuff packed as you were moving out of my house. It was a tough day for both of us. We both knew it would be a long time before we would see each other again. Neither one of us said anything. Just a hug, handshake, and a take care, my friend. I remember I made a call to you in mid-February of 2015. It was one of the most exciting calls of my life. Cam, I said as you picked up. Your boy's getting hitched. Man, you were so excited for me, it even took me by surprise. Given the fact that you had just graduated the Kentucky State Police Academy, I knew it would be tough for you to get time off and attend. But I asked anyway. Cam, I want you to be my best man, I asked. Buddy, I know it killed you that you couldn't be there. It meant the world to me, though, to see how happy you were for me. And I appreciate that more than anything. You were there in spirit, and that's all I cared about, my friend. It's funny to me how as we get older, we never grew apart. We didn't have to speak to each other once a week. We'd go months without talking, and somehow when we spoke, it's like we never missed a beat. We just pick right up where we left off the last time. You know? I'm going to miss that, my friend. Here we are now, and my one regret at this moment is that I didn't call you sooner. I never got a chance to ask you how life as in L-E-O was, which is shorthand for law enforcement officer. I never got a chance to say congratulations on your engagement. I never got a chance to say thank you for our friendship for the memories, and for your service. And for that, I am truly sorry, Cam. Your memory will live on forever with me, Cam. You touched so many people's lives in a positive way. Your service to keep the public safe will never be forgotten. You made the ultimate sacrifice. And as much pain as I'm in, it comforts me to know that you are in a better place. You'll forever have a place in my heart, and it's been an honor being by your side all these years. I'm coming home, buddy. We will be united one last time.
Beautiful. You don't hear men writing to each other like that enough. And on our American stories, we're happy to bring that to you. It's an honor. The next story, Susan Farrell, a Des Moines police officer. Susan had been a veteran for over 11 years. She was hit in her cruiser and killed in a head-on collision by a drunk driver. At her emotional funeral, police chief Dana Wingert asked all the first responders to stand. And then he said this. So why get in this business? If this is how it ends, if this is what it's all about, why sign on? Regardless of whether you're fighting fires, fighting crime, or providing medical care to save lives, you sign on because you know that there are people that depend on you. You sign on because you know that you're making a difference and it would be chaos without you. You sign on for the personal satisfaction that you're able to bring home from the job that only someone that fills your role can understand. You sign on because it's a calling and you truly care about the welfare of others. Don't ever for a second forget why you signed on. To the family members, I'd like you to turn around. I'd like you to turn around and take this all in. And don't just look at the sheer numbers, look into their eyes. They sign on because you know that there are people like this in this room that will always be there for you. It is who we are, it is what we do. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing quite like it and Officer Susan Farrell will always be a part of this family. They didn't make it. Those are the words that we'll never forget. But I stand here before you today to argue that statement. These are nothing more than words because Officer Susan Farrell and Officer Carlos Puente Morales did make it. And now they sit in God's house and they watch over us and they guide us and they will for all of our days. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And again, so often in the media, the focus is on the bad few. And sometimes the exceptional men and women of courage. But here in our American stories, we want to honor the vast majority of cops trying to do their job under difficult circumstances. We will always talk about holding our nation's cops to the highest standard. And the best of the breed want that. And they don't like bad cops in their midst. They don't. I know too many. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, National Police Week. Again, you heard about Susan Farrell. My goodness, you heard the story of Ashley Gwinden. And you're going to hear some more stories on the other side of this break. And I think what's so irritating to so many officers of the law is that cops have driven crime rates to epic lows in this country. And yet 50% of Americans think crime is on the rise. And that's because the media just wants to beat us up with the latest crime statistics. And of course, when there's a bad cop story, they get so excited. And it's just, well, it's just irritating. And worse, it's a morale downer to all the men and women who've done so much good. And it will be once in a while, it will be nice to celebrate and honor cops. And that's what we're doing here. 
National Police Week, Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and it's National Police Week, and we're spending an hour today, and we've spent quite a bit of time this week, honoring the men and women in blue who've fallen, protecting us from chaos. And we learned right away in that first story about young Ashley Gwinden on her very first call, a simple, you would think, domestic dispute case, a woman screaming for help about a husband, she said, was trying to kill her. And by the way, they get those calls all the time, and more often than not, the husband isn't actually trying to kill her at the time, the spouse. Harm her, possibly. But in this particular occasion, the husband was trying to kill her, and he killed her. And when the cops arrived, they arrived to a crime scene. A dead body and a man with a gun who is now looking to kill more people, and cops in particular. And he didn't hesitate. And he gunned down Ashley Gwendon on her first and her last tour of duty. And again, what we try to emphasize here in our American stories is that when cops go into these situations, they don't know what's going to happen. An ordinary traffic stop. And having known so many friends whose family served when I was living in northern New Jersey in the NYPD, and I would watch Carl Bazin's brothers strap up, put on that gun, and one of them worked in transit in the subways back when that was not a particularly safe beat. And what he wanted to do was make it safe for the women, the waitresses particularly. He always said, that waitress who's going down there at 1 a.m., that's every bad guy's dream to get her, and I'm not going to let him. And there are a lot of things Carl's brother could have done in his life, but that's what he wanted to do. And watching him get, get to work each day, putting that gun on and being plain clothes, You knew he could not come back. That was a strong chance of that. And he did it anyway. And that's always the image I have in my head is Carl Bazin's family, so many of them, almost all of them dedicated to law enforcement, from the dad to the brothers to Carl and the FBI. And a special shout-out to you, buddy, because a lot of things you could have done with your law degree at University of Virginia and serving in counterterrorism in New York City, going around the world, dropping in in Yemen and all these crazy places you've dropped into in Afghanistan and Iraq. God bless, Godspeed. And now let's get to our final story. And it's a story of Marine veteran, Massachusetts State Trooper Thomas Clardy. The day, March 16th, 2016. Thomas was pulling an extra shift before his regularly scheduled duty day to help provide for his seven children. It was noon, and he had just pulled over a Chevy Tahoe. What happened next happened fast. 
A Nissan Maxima traveling in the outermost lane suddenly veered across three lanes of traffic, almost as if it was intentional. It didn't slow down. It didn't deviate. It just bed straight at Trooper Clardy, and then it slammed into his cruiser. The incredible force of the impact pushed he and his police cruiser into the Tahoe, and all three of them landed in the grass off the highway. Though the ambulance arrives quickly, State Trooper Clardy was declared dead on arrival. At his funeral outside St. Michael's Catholic Church, the Massachusetts State Pipes and Drums honored their fallen. While 1,120 state troopers stood at attention, how do we know that's the number exactly? Well, because his young daughter counted every single trooper as they passed. That's how we know. Perhaps more than anyone, Trooper Clardy will live in the hearts of his children, each of whom wrote a note to be read at his funeral by his friend, retired police sergeant Al Tony. You can hear him struggling to get through these heart-rendering letters. Daddy, I love you. Didn't care. I love the fact that you didn't care what other people thought. I loved how funny you were. I loved all the stories and jokes. I love you, Dad, Emma. Daddy, I remember even though you were running late to work, you always had time to say goodbye. And you always had time to play a game. We always had time to play a game with you. I love you, Daddy. I love Eva. Daddy, I love that you cared whatever. You didn't care what anyone thought about you. You would always make us happy. You would always make sure that we had everything we needed. I love you and miss you. Love, Gabriella. Daddy, my dad was favorite. My dad's favorite thing with him. My my favorite thing with my dad was his snug was snuggling with him, hugs and kisses. Love, Noah. Lily, my dad was a great guy. I loved him for many things. I loved how he always said to me, "I can't wait till I get to work." And and tell. And tell, and tell the guys I work with about the most beautiful girl in the world. But Sergeant Tony saved the best one for last, from Trooper Clardy's 17-year-old son, Tyler, who, much to all the funeral's delight, brought a laugh and a smile to everyone's face as he divulged the secret moments he long shared and treasured with his dad. Tyler says to me, in 2007, he was nine years old. His father came. They had a birthday party for him. His father came to him, and father says, come with me, son. His father took him out. He says, where are we going? They went to the show. Pulled up to the theater and went to the show. Tom turned to Tyler, and he said, it's about time, son. I'm going to take you to your first R-rated movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the summer before, Tyler states also that the summer before his um, senior year in high school, um, he was turned 17. He says his dad came home. He says, it was like any other day. His dad came home, and his dad said, son, come with me. They went out to the backyard, made a fire in the fire pit. Tom put two chairs around the fire pit. 
Tyler says they sat there for three hours. They made hot dogs and hamburgers, just the two of them. And Tom talked to Tyler about life. Not only did Tom talk about Tyler, tell Tyler about life, Tom told Tyler what he expected of him in life. That's a father. That's a father that cares. Trooper Clardy, remembered by his kids, remembered by his colleagues. And we're going to leave this hour with another reading. The Thin Blue Line really is a fraternity of sorts, a a brotherhood that doesn't require kinship, but is born by shared sacrifice. Here is an officer sharing a poem for his fallen brothers. Here is Chad Miner. Hello, my name is Chad Miner. I work for the police department in Powell, Wyoming. In 2011, we lost one of our patrol sergeants to an off-duty accident. During that time, dispatcher Jesse Borcher forwarded a poem to me titled The Final Inspection. I would like to share that poem with you today. The policeman stood and faced his God, which must always come to pass. He hoped his shoes were shiny, just as brightly as his brass. Step forward now, policeman, how shall I deal with you? Have you always turned the other cheek? To my church have you been true? The policeman squared his shoulders and said, No, Lord, I guess I ain't. Because those of us who carry badges can't always be a saint. I've had to work most Sundays, and at times my talk was rough, and sometimes I've been violent, because the streets are awfully tough. But I never took a penny that wasn't mine to keep, though I worked a lot of overtime when the bills got just too steep. And I never passed a cry for help, though at times I shook with fear, and sometimes... God forgive me, I've wept unmanly tears. I know I don't deserve a place among the people here. They never wanted me around, except to calm their fear. If you've a place for me here, Lord, it needn't be so grand. I never expected or had too much, but if you don't, I'll understand. There was silence all around the throne, where the saints had often trod, as policemen waited quietly for the judgment of his God. Step forward now, policemen. You've borne your burdens well. Come walk a beat on heaven's streets. You've done your time in hell. The author of this poem is unknown. We would like to extend our thoughts and prayers to the families who have lost loved ones in the line of duty, and also to those families that currently share their loved ones in the line of duty. May God bless you. And there you have it. Four tragic, four sad stories, four fallen officers, and each year... We celebrate and commemorate and honor fallen heroes. National Police Week. Ashley Gwinden, Cameron Ponder, Susan Farrell, Thomas Clardy, their families, and the greater family of blue, because we learn over and over that they rally together. We like to do this because, in the end, the thin blue line protects us from bad things. And yes, we periodically do a story about the bad cop because they're there. But the overwhelming majority, they put on the uniform like Ashley Gwinden does and did for one reason and one reason alone. And that is to serve and protect. Again, this is Our American Stories, honoring our fallen police officers, our fallen heroes, on National Police Week.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories are some of the best we do here on this show. And today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up in Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today, he brings us a story you're going to have to hear to believe. It's all about love, old-fashioned values, and, well, breaking the law. Here's Tom. I slipped the ring on her finger, said I do, and thought it was forever. Boy, was I wrong. So I've joined the shuffling line of millions of lonely people wondering where it all went wrong. What do you do with 15 years of memories? It is reassuring, however, to know that there are couples who make it through 40 or 50 years of marriage. Of course, they are usually as astonished as anyone else that they made it. That look of surprise in their newspaper anniversary pictures isn't an accident. I even know of a couple who made it that long without being married. It started in those lean depression days of the late 30s in my small New England hometown, where any woman who dyed her hair or plucked her eyebrows was snickered at, and divorce was something for movie stars. Dr. Joe was the town doctor, a quiet, mumbling man who made house calls at any hour of the day or night. He brought our family through all sorts of medical crises. He was devoted Catholic and he had a wife and two kids. He was so lost in his work, however, that his wife finally skipped off with a touring actor and even took the kids with her. Dr. Joe only worked harder after that. When I passed the bar exam in the 50s, he toyed with the idea of turning over years of unpaid bills to me for collection. But he never had the heart to do it. He was too nice. Dr. Joe met Clara Jensen at church social functions. Clara's husband had died in a plane crash a few years earlier. They became bridge partners and shared a basket at church outings, and they fell totally in love. According to my mother, who with her brother Jim ran a family funeral home a block away from the church and was a close friend of both, said they made great efforts to get a church annulment of his first marriage so that they could marry. But in those days, the church was very rigid. Years drifted by, but they never gave up hope. 
I lost track of them after having moved to the West Coast, but my 90-year-old mother sometimes mentioned them in our weekly phone conversations. During my last trip home, chatting over our usual cup of tea at her old kitchen table, I asked Mom about Dr. Joe and Clara. She didn't answer. Instead, she rose and hovered over the tea kettle on the stove, pretending to be busy. She said, talking to the tea kettle, I've done something very wrong. Judge O'Sullivan just called to tell me about it. She hesitated and then turning to me with eyes blazing and a smile of satisfaction set deep in her cheeks, and I am so happy that I did it. What? I said, not quite sure of what I had heard. What's the joke, Helen Murphy? No joke, she started to sniffle. I stood up and embraced the lumpy little figure I had loved all my life, kissing her incredibly soft, freckled cheek. Hey, you've got a lawyer son, don't worry. I can spring any woman who still doesn't eat meat on Friday and hasn't missed daily mass in years, unless you've committed mass murder. She shook her head as she dabbed at her eyes and nose with a tissue, waving away my attempt at humor. Have some more tea, she said, as she refilled our cups. I waited until she was ready to talk, and then it came spilling out. You asked about Dr. Joe and Clara. Oh, dear. I thought I had told you on the phone. Told me what? Dr. Joe died a few months ago. I think you were in Europe. He was raking leaves in his garden. The newspaper delivery boy found him. Oh, no. Was Clara with him? No, she was at her own place. She still had her own place? Didn't they live together? No, of course not, Mike. My God, they went together for 30 or 40 years. Didn't they sleep? She shook her head. They were very close, but they were also good Catholics. And when we come back, this unique voice and a listener to Our American Stories, a listener in Los Angeles on our affiliate there, KABC. And we're listening to Tom Ryan talking about the story of Dr. Joe and Clara Benson. Tom had moved out to the West Coast. His mom was still back on the East Coast, out on Long Island, and catching up on the news of this couple that he looked up to and admired. Another great listener's story here on Our American Stories. 